Welcome to podcast number 23 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business. Today's date is March 23rd, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Don C. Johnson. Don founded Trace Investigations in Bloomington, Indiana in 1990, and for over the past 30 years, the firm has become the leader in providing litigation support to trial attorneys around the state specializing in personal injury and criminal defense cases. In addition, Trace Investigations is a regional pre-employment screening company, offering background investigations to large and small businesses. Although he has turned over the day-to-day investigative work to his staff, Don continues to serve as chairman of the Indiana Private Investigator and Security Guard Licensing Board. He and his wife, Becky, reside in a small town near Bloomington. My pleasure to bring on Don Johnson to the show. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business, how to market your private investigation business, and how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach, or one word, Com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Don. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Good to hear from you, bud. Yeah, it's good to talk to you, too. Now, how is it out there in Indiana today? It's uh, actually nice. We had sunshine all day today. It was a little cool, but we had sun. Uh, we had four inches of snow dumped on us uh, on Wednesday. Oh, that's nice. And a lot of it's gone. It was our first, actually, first major uh, snow. Okay. It's been uh, quite a mild winter so far. Yeah, we uh, we had a, only a little bit of snow uh, this week or earlier in the week. And uh, my son and I had, were working on a case. And, of course, he stepped right out of the car, right into a slush puddle. And I had a laugh. <laughs> it's just that because being a private investigator or being an investigator, that's, that's the hazard of the job, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. Anyway. Dogs but, and uh, mud puddles. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So here in uh, southwestern Connecticut, as we record this on January 29th, 2021, we've got a polar vortex bearing down on us. It was uh, 13 degrees with a 20-mile-hour wind, so it put the uh, wind chill into the negative numbers. And for a guy that has not had that kind of weather, at least in two years, it was a bit chilly out yeah, there. So I bet. Definitely. But, you know, we talk about the weather as you did now and as I did now, and some of my listeners say, oh, why do you always talk about the weather? And it's, well, it's the life of investigators. We have to understand what's going on with the weather. We have to know, you know how to plan our jobs, where to go, how the weather might impact on them. 
especially with surveillance. Obviously, that's that's huge. Absolutely. So, but it's always a good conversation starter. You know, when you call somebody up across the country and say, "Hey, how you doing? What's the weather like there?" And of course, my friends in San Diego tell me that it's Chamber of Commerce weather, and I have to curse them for that. But you know, anyhow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember those uh, surveillance days Mm -hmm. uh, very, very well. You know, coldest of the cold and the hottest of the hot. You were out there in your vehicle usually, and. you always had to know the weather. And back in those days, we watched TV early in the morning to get the weather report. These days, of course, we've got our phones. Right. But absolutely. you're right because it's, it's an integral part of your business life. Very much so. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little surveillance tip is that you show up on a, uh, you know, on a neighborhood street, you know, and if you're not there early enough for the weather to do what it's doing to every other car, exactly, in yeah. other words, if you show up with a completely cleaned off car, you're going to stick up like, like out of like a sore thumb. So you've got to leave your snow on and you've got to hope that some more snow comes on your windshield, at least the parts where your camera is not going to pop out. So you don't look like you're uh, sticking out like a sore thumb. Little surveillance tip, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Hope, hopefully it works out that way. Some, you know, if Murphy's law can sometimes uh, jump up and bite you, but uh, you, you try, you try to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we we just dipped our toes a little bit into the old days. So Don, tell me what it was like you know, when you first became a private investigator. What the, was that original idea like, and what were you hoping to do with it? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure that I recall what I was hoping to do with it. It was uh, it seems a while back. It's been over 30 years now. Okay, I started out. I was living in New York City at the time, and uh, oh, okay. I'd uh, I'd spent. Uh, about five years working for the entertainment unions as an executive assistant in my last job. And I worked for Actors' Equity for three years as a, as a field representative. And I worked closely with the, with the attorneys, for the attorney for Actors' Equity. And I was a claims investigator, basically, safety and security inspections on, on theaters. I traveled a lot. I was a field guy, as I said. So I worked the dinner theater circuit, which was very active in those days, back in the 80s. And I worked the summer stock circuit those days up in um, in Maine and Connecticut and then south into uh, Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, of course, they were operating under equity contracts, <laughs> so there were always union issues to deal with, troubleshoot. I was a troubleshooter. You try, you're solving people's problems is basically what you were. The, you were the guy in the middle between the acting company and the producers. Okay. So that was, that was actually a good experience. I was uh, cutting my teeth on on uh, developing good people skills for facing adversarial situations. Uh, It worked very well because I had a background prior to that as an analyst in the military. So I was able to bleed or meld those two skills together. And and it served me well in those early days because, as you know, you get thrown into a lot of different situations when you're a young investigator. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you said, you're either sitting in a car or you're talking to people, knocking on doors, and serve me well. So anyway, but the union job ended. I needed a job. Right. I'd, I'd known a couple of private investigators. I'd met them during my travels because uh, I traveled all over the country. Mm-hmm. I forget how many states I'd worked through in those days. I got a job with Burns International, which was based, uh, had an office there on Columbus Circle in New York City. I don't know if you remember the old Burns firm or not. Burns International Investigation Service. Of course, they had a big security division as well. And uh, one of the oldest private investigation firms around at the time. 
Pinkerton and Burns. They they had been competitors since the turn of the last century. So uh, I, but I worked for them. And it's really interesting. They sent me out of town because oh, I had a driver's license. Everybody else was well, taking the subway and the bus, I guess, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did. Most of my work for Burns was out of New York. Mm-hmm. So a few cases in, in, the, in the suburbs, in the boroughs, but most of my work was out of town. I worked with uh, several ex-cops who were PIs, subcontracting to Burns, but I was a staff guy. Yep. So I did a lot of strike security, did uh, a lot of uh, insurance work and with a Bell & Howe 8 millimeter camera. I'm dating myself there. Oh, no. That was, I think, a few years after my original, my very first surveillances, where I still had the old you know, 16 millimeter cameras. And they made a hell of a racket. Yeah, wow. Yeah. The big yeah. boy. Yeah, yeah. You start those cameras and you just sure somebody on the street heard yeah. you. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the batteries for those things. You know, I, I felt like I was one of those astronauts jumping off the, uh, you know, the lunar lander you know, <laughs> with how big those uh, battery packs were. Then, of course, if you wanted to get film, you needed to get that process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We both had to get our film yeah. process. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you had to you had to take care of it in the meantime. If you you know if you shipped it, you had to ship it carefully. You had to protect the chain, uh, you know, chain of custody. And uh, right. So yeah, it, it was it was interesting work, and you were developing a lot of skills in in the old days that you could move into the new days and very easily, of course. And uh, but sure does. Uh, the equipment changed. Obviously, you know, as I can remember, transitioning to the uh, VHS uh, video cameras. Mm-hmm. Big old, big old RCA VHS camera that put that thing on your shoulder and you couldn't see your head, you know, from. Yeah, it was like a rocket launcher. <laughs> exactly. I, I still have one, believe I it or not. Too. I, I do too. Oh, okay. I do. I do. And I, I still have, you could buy in those days a little a 20 minute VHS cassettes, you know, which okay. were perfect on a surveillance because uh, some of those surveillances, you were lucky if you got 20 minutes of, of video that day. Right. And they came in very handy. And uh, mm-hmm. I've actually still have some of those blank tapes. I just never did dispose of them after we would transition to the small cameras. I know. I know. So, and then uh, now they have cameras that fit in the palm of your hand. Oh, so my gotta... goodness. Yes. I, I joke with my staff and uh, always have. I said, well, we got a, this is a nice new camera we've got, but it's out, it was outdated by the time it got here. <laughs> mm, that's true. And the other thing too, is that you touched on this briefly, Don, was, uh, that you knew the old-fashioned way of getting what they call today data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right? Records, archives, Coles directories, crisscross, libraries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. And yes, those city directories were valuable, you know, and, and I know they're still published, but you don't see them much anymore. You'd walk into a PI's office, you know, back in the in the early 90s, and there'd be a two or three library shelves full of nothing but phone books. And uh, I used to collect them myself when, during my travels. I'd stay in a hotel and always right. wind up with a phone book somehow from that yeah. location. And it made sense because yeah. that's how they kept data in those days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I laugh, data. But uh, yeah, information. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we'd spend time in, in the storage room of a county courthouse looking through old records, 30 and 40 years of dust, mm-hmm. you know, trying, trying to find old records that would lead you to current information. That's true. Um, I, I remember doing air searches and, you know, all you would have was a 20-year-old name of, of a 16-year-old girl, who, you know, whose child was adopted. And, and where is she now? 
you know, mm. and, and then the, the adoptee, the adult who hired you or the attorney for the adult who hired you, that's all they had. And they knew where the adoption took place, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, if, that, if that's all you had, that's where you started. You know? What was the adoption business like in those days? You, you had to know that. So it helps you figure out where to go to look. Yeah. And the thing about the old, old records was the stuff that was written, handwritten in the margins was sometimes as valuable yes, than yes, the actual yes. record itself. And I, I really missed the fact there was that period of time when those old records were then not copied into an OCR reader, but were transcribed into very limited information. And then they were destroyed and all that good stuff went. Now, now a lot of, a lot of records are, if they're microfilmed from what they were, well, now you can still see what's in the margins, but at least, but in that in-between period when stuff just became digitized without any concern about the other information on the page, well, then, you know, you missed out on that. So there was that period of time when we lost that and I really regretted that, but now things are coming, flinging back full circle where you can actually see the actual record. Yeah. Yeah. It's very handy in those days, uh, you're doing, um, for example, Example: Doing a background investigation, checking the uh, the old what we call here in Indiana the fee books, the uh, the, the log books where they log cases in. You know, to find where that file is, you had to go to that log book. And, and mm-hmm. in a college town like Blooming, doing a background check on on someone that lived here four or five years ago and when he was in college, you would be going through dozens of books because it's in a college town. The misdemeanor books, for example, there were dozens. Mm. Of and every and every town did it a little differently. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We called them fee books here, and and those okay. those books are still out there. It's the it's the log book. You know, they log the case mm-hmm. in, they assign the cause number to it, and uh, notate where the file is. So, so you were at Burns. How long were you at Burns before uh, your next position? I was not with Burns more than two years at, at the most, and then I I left New York and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my father. Parents lived in southern Kentucky, just north of Nashville, Tennessee. My dad uh, had a heart attack. Oh, we didn't sorry. know if he was going to make it or not. He was in the Veterans Hospital in Nashville. So I said, well, I, you know, I'd been wanting to get out of New York, and this was the time. So I did it. You know, okay. I just moved down there and, and uh, got an apartment. Uh, at that time, Tennessee did not have a state license. Nashville had a municipal license. It was basically a business license. And I subcontracted. I don't. I don't think uh, Tennessee has a state license um, yes, now. Yes, they do. do they? Matter of fact, they oh, do. they do. Yeah, okay. they do now. Okay, but their um, their requirements for licensing are a little different than other states. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot different. Actually, their licensing is a lot stronger than the licensing we have here in Indiana. Oh, okay, it's a felony to to work without a PI license in Tennessee. Okay, and, uh, in Indiana, it's just a a misdemeanor. So it depends on the state. The state codes vary. You know, licensing is by states. And and I think there's only two, maybe two or three states now that don't have licensing. Colorado just lost, they lost their licensing. It was voted out by the General Assembly last year. Mm. So, or the year before, I forget which now. But uh, it it was a municipal license. So I got a business license and worked, subcontracted with a couple of investigators there that I'd gotten to know. And I just did did a lot of their work for him. I worked for a gentleman, and at that time he was probably in his sixties. He was, but he still had his PI business, and uh, he did a lot of uh, polygraph examinations, and didn't do much uh, 
field work anymore. And he wanted me to do his field work. So I did, did, did all his field work for him. Nice. Uh, and um, he did polygraph examinations for the bass tournaments. There's a lot, believe it or not, in those days, mm. there was a lot of fraud in the bass tournament circuit. No kidding. Yes, yes. Well, guys would go out before the tournament the next day and plant fish. Ah. <laughs> you find fraud in the strangest places, don't you, John? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, mean, Bob, I, I can make some fishing uh, lures, hook, line, and sinker. You know, I can make all those kind of puns, but yeah, yeah. it's a little late in the afternoon, so I'm not. Yes, it is. But anyway, uh, Bob was a great guy. I learned a lot from him, actually. He had his, all his old PI files there in his office, and he did a lot of uh, domestic work at the Back in those days, Tennessee was a no-fault divorce state. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it was a, at fault and uh, infidelity with grounds for a divorce. So oh, he did okay. a lot of work, and he showed me his collection of uh, eight by ten black and white photographs from those days. And you talk about a, a, a real show, catching people in, in delicate situations. You would call your client, you know, you tell this the uh, party in error, so to speak, to a location, usually a motel somewhere. And then you'd call your client whose spouse was in that in that hotel room and they'd break the door down. Oh, man. The spouse could. You couldn't. You'd get arrested probably. And then you stepped in. You got one shot with your, with your Graflex camera and that one flash bulb, one slide, one shot. That's all you got. So right. you, you can imagine what happens when that door burst open. So. But anyway, I learned a lot from Bob and uh, did a lot of uh, lot of work. And that's where I actually first started doing criminal defense work was down there and uh, for a couple of attorneys down there. So it was interesting. In those in those early days in business, it was a struggle for me trying to keep up with everything that I was being exposed to in in, in the field. You know, without without any formal training. You know, I'd never had an interview class. I'd never had a Anything dealing with any of that, uh, you know, about watching people talk and learning body movements that can indicate signs of indications of deception. So it was it was learning as you go. It was on the job training, literally on the job training. Yeah. One thing I never wanted anyone that worked for me to have to go through, you know, and from the very beginning, I made sure Tina and uh, uh, Caitlin, who works for me, going, make sure they went to the conferences, they could do the seminars. Anything mm-hmm. that came up, like the uh, Indiana Police Academy will hold seminars occasionally for continuing education for police officers. And it's, it's open. You know, if you, if you pay the fee, you can go. Young right. investigators can. And I, I sent them to a couple of those uh, conferences on, on interviewing and things like that. Well, as an example, I, I would talk about my own situation. I was starting to get criminal defense cases. Now, I was a decent investigator. I had some good background. I learned a lot about interviewing, especially investigative interviewing, but I really didn't understand the, not the nuances, but the whole framework surrounding criminal defense work. Sure. I remember I took my entire staff at that time, four of us, to a Brandon Perrin course on the component method of uh, uncovering reasonable doubt, the component. Uh, Uncovering reasonable doubt. Absolutely. Great book. That's a great book. And he did a 40 hour course on it too. And that was fantastic. And it, it gave me the foundation between the book and the course, the foundation from which I could then view the lens of what a criminal defense investigation looked like. And getting called on the witness stand, you know, years after I had done a, a criminal defense investigation, 
And I was so happy that my reports reflected the training that I had gotten from that class because without that training, I had no uniformity. I had no uh, protocols. I had no procedures. Exactly. And with all that, I could just go look at my uh, reports and say, oh, boy, I'm glad I did that the right way. You know? Yes, exactly. That, that, was, a, that was a big one, report writing. And I'd, I'd had some experience writing reports. I'd worked for a nonprofit shortly after college, and, and we had to do reports. I had some writing skills, fortunately, and, and uh, I learned mm-hmm. how to write reports. And, and that I concentrated on that. and. Uh, the interviewing and and uh, I remember uh, Tony Golick's uh, book. One of the founding fathers of the National Association of Legal Investigators wrote techniques of legal investigation. You know, he mm-hmm. uh, he wrote that book in the I think the, the yep. first edition was the late sixties, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was the, yeah, it was the Bible of, of legal investigations. You know, of, of investigators who provided litigation support and. Uh, and there was nothing before that. No, it was no. a complete wasteland. This was yeah. groundbreaking stuff with the fellows and ladies did at Nally back in the late 60s. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, I wanted to ask you, what was it after Nashville? Where did the, your career take you next? Well, I uh, actually came up to Bloomington because I'd gone to college here. Oh, actually, okay. I first came came to Bloomington. Let me back up and set, set the framework for this. I originally came to Bloomington. Uh, 1964, when I was in the Air Force, they sent me up here after basic training. The Department of Defense had a language training program here, and there were 55 of us in a class that started, um, and that's late August, September of 64. We were studying Russian. We were Russian. We were studying to be Russian uh, linguist and analyst. Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, it was a very good, very good program. And then after, after, uh, Four years in the Air Force, I, I came back here on the GI Bill to went to college. So I, I knew Bloomington well. And then that year I was in Nashville. I came up here to visit. I still had a good buddy up here who was teaching at IU and um, came up here to visit him. And just reading the Indianapolis Star one day, there was an ad for an investigator with a firm in Indianapolis. It did, uh, I didn't know anything about the firm at all. And I had the extra time. It over the Christmas season, if I remember correctly, and I went, drove up to Indianapolis, interviewed for the job, and a couple, three days, a week later, got a phone call, got the job. So, so I was eager. You know, it was a full-time job working for a firm doing insurance, insurance defense stuff. Nice. And it was a full-time job. That was, that was my main thing, you know. And uh, I, okay. I moved up and uh, worked there for three years and uh, doing a lot of surveillance, because that's pretty much all we did was insurance defense, which, is, as you know, is investigating workers' comp claims, disability claims, involves a lot of surveillance. And um, worked there for three years and then opened my own firm. Got an Indiana license in, in 1990, mm-hmm. my first Indiana license in 1990. Uh, back in those days, uh, the Indiana State Police were in charge of licensing of private, uh, called us private detectives in those days. And uh, got a PD license, they called it. You could do PI work or security guard work under the same license Okay. in those days. But uh, that changed in uh, 07, 2007. The codes changed and the ticket was split, as I like to say. If you had a PD license, the old PD license, you could get a PI license. We were, we were now under law being called private investigators. You could get a PI license or you could uh, convert to a security guard license. You could still do both, but you would have to buy that second license. So, and, it, and it's still that way. 
So okay, I've, I've carried both licenses uh, all these years. Although I don't run a guard company, I've done some some security consulting and actually put together a few security details over the years. Uh, okay, uh, special details. But uh-huh. uh, I worked in the security business when I was in Nashville. I worked part time for a security company mm. in one of the uh, Tony suburbs of Nashville. There, and we were pretty much functioning like a private police force. We were armed security. So I did not want to get any deeper into the security guard business, if you know what I mean. I do. And, uh, yeah. But instead, you jumped from the frying pan of being working for a company into the fire by becoming oh a boy, yes, oh boy. Yeah, so let's talk about those days when. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I you know I I'd had a good deal of experience, but but not a lot of business experience. In fact, virtually mm. none. I'd worked in retail out of okay. high school before I went into service, and college I worked part time, a couple of jobs, but I'd never run a business, and and uh, it, it was rough. It was really rough. I got lucky and got some regular clients right right out of the gate. But you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, forty hours a week. Mm-hmm. But you learn you learn to budget your money and budget your time. You know I, I over the years told young investigators or people wanting to get into the business, you know you're going to work forty hours. And if you're lucky, you're going to build twenty. You know. So I think it's probably easier these days if you've got some kind of experience because we have so much more available to us in technology that we didn't have in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a landline phone and I had a manual typewriter. Uh, you know, that, that was and, and an old VHS camera. And I still had my Minolta SRT 101 35 millimeter mm-hmm. that I bought when I was overseas, shipped directly from Japan and uh, with an add-on motor drive that sounded like a, yeah. you know, a, what we were talking about earlier. You could hear that drive advancing every time you that shutter went off. It sounded like oh, a yeah. motor. And it was. It was a big motor. But... <laughs> it, it was different. The technology now makes it better. I know. Makes it better if you learn how to use it. And, and you have to learn how to use it to survive these days. I, I don't think you could do it like I did it in the old days. You, you wouldn't yeah. survive. That makes for a very interesting conversation because the uh, time when there were private investigator offices, well, there were secretaries and there were bookkeepers and there was all that support staff that yes. absolutely positively needed to be done. Unless, of course, like some of the uh, mom and pops, you know, one would be the investigator, the other would be the typer or the typist, you know, and if one was out in the field, somebody would be answering the phone, yep. you know, yep. and uh, the, the need to have an actual office was so important back then. And yellow page ads. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know? yep. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yellow, yellow page ad. I was single in those days in, in between marriages, if you will. And so I had an answering service and a pager, you know, okay. we, we carried, we carried that mm-hmm. pager around. So if someone did call your number and the, the answering service could page you and then you try to find a phone booth and right. return that call. I think uh, I knew where every Greek diner was within a, a hundred mile radius of uh, my home base because, well, you know, when you say Greek diner, why Greek diner? Well, clean toilets, pay phones and good food and usually 24 yeah. seven, right? Yeah. So that was your office away from the office, yeah. you know, so to speak. You know, you would give the uh, weight person, I'm trying to be politically correct, a uh, really healthy tip to let you sit in the far corner and you'd, uh, you know, uh, you'd work your pager and you'd work your reports and you'd go to the out to the lobby area and you'd hit pay phone and jingle the dimes and, 
you know, you'd make your calls and there you go. Go back to have your cup of coffee again. Yeah, for real. I, I miss those Greek diners. And in, in those years I was in New York, I miss those Greek diners. When I was uh, starting out here in Indiana back in 1990, you know, it was McDonald's. You know, if you want a clean bathroom, there's there's the McDonald's, and they were usually a, a good bet for that. I was never a really big fast food eater, so you always had to plan ahead and pack your lunch, you know, and, and uh, things like that. Uh, otherwise, if you, you know, you're sitting in a car on surveillance eight hours a day, the last thing you want to be doing is packing in a lot of calories. So, <laughs> yes, or on a surveillance. <laughs> on surveillance, yeah. yeah because yeah. what goes in must come out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, the urge would always hit when the subject was yeah. moving. Yeah. Oh, Murphy's Law, as yeah. we talk about. So, you started your business and uh, had some good clients, but uh, learned very quickly that uh, there were issues about being in business that you had to uh, learn more about or learn how to deal yeah, with. So, yeah, you, you got you got to make sure you make those quarterly payments. You know, minor point. <laughs> because yeah. if if you if you don't make that quarterly tax payment, you know, IRS is going to remind you uh, about it and you're going to have some penalties to face. So, but I, I eventually, you know, learned how to do it. And I met my wife in, in 95 and she were, she was working for the bank one corporation at the time. And she was a compliance officer for the bank and she was a big help. She helped me. Really? She helped me. She said, aren't you a member of the chamber of commerce? I said, no, she said, well, you should. And she was right. Mm-hmm. And to this day, my company gets referrals through the chamber of commerce. Absolutely. Because we're the only local private investigation firm that's a member the last time I checked. So incredible. Yeah. Right. It was, and it was great. It's a great networking. I learned that you have to, not only do we network among our, you know, our professional, our peers, our, our, our professional associations, but you've got to network locally as well. You know, in those days to get in touch with the attorneys, you had, you know, just go knock on the door. You know, you'd send them a letter, but if you don't hear anything, you better follow up on it. You know, who was it? Jimmy. Messis used to do a seminar on, on on business and making calls, sales, you know, for the private investigator. And that was one, one of the points he always, you know, Absolutely. how many calls you got to make before you, before you get a, a lead or a case, if you will. So I learned early on, people ask me what I do. Sometimes I would say, well, I'm a businessman. Yes. Yeah. yeah the sooner I learned to say, I provide investigative services. The self-identification as being the gumshoe changed. And when I wanted to, of course, regale people with my wonderful stories, I'd say, oh, I'm a private investigator. When I didn't feel like it, I'd say, oh, I, I help attorneys prepare for trial. Exactly. That, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there, there's a business consultant, Diana Guerin, out of Atlanta. I think you probably know Diana. That's, that's one, of her, one of her points when she's done a lot of seminars for PIs over the years. She said that that's that you've got to have that elevator speech and that's got to be a part of it. You know, I help my clients succeed. However you want to phrase it, part of that elevator speech is, is you you help your clients succeed in their endeavor. So I assume it works. a lot of the government investigators that try to get into the private business understand that that's the key to their success. You know, it's one thing to have this great investigative background, but if you don't understand who you're serving, and that's the right word, serving. You can be the greatest investigator in the world, but if you don't understand what the investigative objective is from their viewpoint, what they need, you're going to be a very frustrated individual or uh, your phone is going to not ring, you know? Not ring. Yeah. And uh, as part of that, as, as, as we hit on earlier, you've got to be able to turn that into a really strong work product, which is that report. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that's part of that learning process, you know, the, the business end of it and then then turning everything that you've done into a really strong report where it doesn't, the attorney's not going to waste his or her time when they're trying to flip through four or five pages, finding the most significant thing about those last three or four days when you were working on the case that they assigned you. That's it. In other words, it's right there, that executive summary of that report. It's all right there. It's like reading the Wall Street Journal or any really good newspaper. That first paragraph tells you the story. That's right. And then, then you go into the details. Right. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So uh, you started your own business with uh, the old you know, equipment, as you know, we all did. How did your business grow? How did it change? Were, were any things that you might have done differently if, in hindsight? You know? Yeah. Having a, a stronger business plan is something beyond what you just sketched out in your brain. You know, and uh, have a solid business plan with its you set goals and work towards. I would have done all that differently. I think I, I would have hit my my speed, so to speak, a lot sooner. I was a late bloomer in this business, but I got into it as a second career. So part of that is is for that reason. But that was the main thing, and uh, I've never regretted the networking. It's we still get a lot of our business from from our networking. You know, colleagues around the state you know, know that around the country, know that they need something done here in Indiana, we'd be glad to talk to them. And and if we can't help them out, we know someone here who will. That's so huge. And time after time after time, too many investigators try to say that, you know, their skills are so great that people will find them. But if you don't get your word out, and if you don't let other investigators know that you're there, then how do they know to pick up the phone and call Don, right? Now, I, I know that I think we our first times together might have been through the National Association of Legal Investigators. I know I've been with the, the organization since 2004, and I know you, you've been around longer than that, right? Yeah, 1995, I okay. joined Nally. I, I had attended some of their regional seminars, uh, which were more prevalent in those days, because I wanted to transition from that insurance defense work to the what you and I know as legal investigations, litigation support right. for personal injury attorneys and criminal defense attorneys. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make that transition. And I, I, I had done some research. I, I went to the library, actually, originally, and there was a directory in those days. I can't remember the name of the directory, but you could find uh, associations for anything would be listed in that directory. I can't remember what it was called anymore, John. The Directory of Associations. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the one? <laughs> uh, yeah, it must be. I yeah, pulled well, that one out of my, uh, well, I won't say where I got that one from. But yeah, I understand. But no, okay, I knew there were, but there were directories, like, there were all kinds of directors, you know, manufacturers directory, associations directory. And right. I did research and, and uh, I've, I ran across Nally, a listing for Nally, and just did, and uh, I went to uh, a regional seminar in Chicago back in 92, maybe, a couple years after I opened my firm. And okay. met, met a lot of people that I still know to this day uh, in, through Nally. And, uh, and mm-hmm. I said, well, at that time, the, the Constitution and bylaws of Nally specified, I think it was 50% or more of your work had to be in personal injury. And you had to document that by submitting a number of attorney names for references. And of course, that's all changed now. It's, it's a it's change for the better now in terms of recognizing uh, where Tony Golick said in that book we talked about earlier, you're going to find legal investigators in many fields of endeavor in the investigative field. But in those days, you had to document that you, the majority of your business was in that area. And it, it took me it took me from uh, 92, whenever it was, until 1995, when I could 
submit a list of attorneys that I was doing nothing but personal injury work for them or criminal defense for them. And Mm -hmm. then joined Niley in 1995. And then uh, in 1997, I I took the examination for a certified legal investigator, which you are, of course, one of. And uh, Mm -hmm. there's some 60, I think 62 of us now in the country, somewhere around there. And and that was two, my Niley membership and my certification were two most significant investments that I made in my professional career in terms of of learning the business and and, uh, succeeding in the business. So it's been very valuable for me. And of course, you know, like you said, you and I met and, uh, and uh, through Nally, you're right. You're absolutely right. You and I met through Nally. Don't, don't ask me which conference it was, but. Oh, I don't know what conference, but we also sat on the board at similar times. Exactly. That's true. We both, we have both sat on the, uh, the, the board of directors of Nally at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. And you made it as national director for. Yes, I did. And uh, a few years back, 2015 through, through 2017. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and the thing about, I found about Nally was that when I had to pivot out of the type of work that I was doing, which was uh, private investigation work, almost uh, as special investigators for insurance companies that didn't have their own special investigators. Sure. When a couple of national firms basically made it impossible for local and small regionals to, uh, to compete, I had to find something else to do. And I had all this insurance background and insurance skill. And I said, well, the other side of the aisle are the personal injury attorneys, and they would really welcome my skills. And when they deposed me, they'd have you know, a 20-year career of being an insurance investigator. So obviously, they'd want me to be you know, being deposed because of my background. So it made sense. But, but again, like we did with criminal defense and, and Brandon Perrin, I had to learn about personal injury. I had to learn how about do it from the other side. So in that case, I said, I did the same thing you did. What do I do? Where do I go? How do I find it? I found Nally to be the perfect place in 2004 for me to land because of both personal injury and criminal defense. Nally, it was a very strong organization as it related to still serving the private individuals, but through their criminal defense attorneys or their personal injury attorneys. and. I found when I joined Nally that I never knew that there was such a high caliber of investigators outside of the governmental arena, whether it be local law enforcement, FBI, ATF, postal inspectors. I never knew that there could be a cadre of investigators in the private sector that upheld ethical code that strove to be the best investigators they could be. And I think what you said earlier was that the uh, penultimate uh, decision by an investigator to prove their mettle was the Certified Legal Investigator Program. If you can talk about that briefly, just for a second, what that is, I think other investigators would, uh, would understand and appreciate the, uh, the depth on which an investigator in the private sector had to go in order to be certified as a Certified Legal Investigator. So if you don't mind, Talk about that a little bit. Oh no, I don't. I don't mind at all. Be glad to. Uh, in fact, uh, as as you know, uh, the Nally website, nally.com, n-a-l-i.com, has a good deal of page of information on the Certified Legal Investigator Program, the certification itself, what you need to qualify to test, and then how the test is administered, the components of the test. It's a written test, and then uh, there's a, a case simulation that you have to go through where you. You are the investigator interviewing a witness, 
and uh, you have to write that up. And then also you have to author a white paper on, on an investigative topic. It's a good examination process and uh, it's not a walk in the park. But if you know, you will test yourself as an investigator. I studied mm-hmm. for it, you know, because there are going to be parts of that test that, you know, I'd never done a railroad investigation, you know, or I'd oh, never no. done a marine investigation. You know, if you study and you've had some experience, um, you can you can become a certified legal investigator. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was the earliest, I believe it was the earliest of the professional certifications for legal invest for, for professional investigators. If I, right. I, I think I'm correct in saying that. And, and probably still one of exactly, those strangers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 My CLI is up on the wall. As is mine in the office. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. June 21st, 2007. Okay. Okay. It was in St. Louis and it happened to be the 40th anniversary of Nally. Yes. It, I remember that conference. I drove over. That's a four hour drive for me. So okay. I was glad to drive over. I, I do remember that conference very well. I tested in 1997 in Chicago. Uh, okay. Nally had a big conference in Chicago that year and uh, I tested up there. So uh, yeah, you don't forget your, that test. No, no, you don't. No, I'm no, sure it's not. just like, uh, uh, the, the young kids who, you know, sit for their, uh, CPA exam, or they sit for the, you know, the, they sit for the bar. Yeah. 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 But uh, I forget what the word is. I apologize. <laughs> well, after you pass that CLI test, you'll be sitting oh, yeah. at the bar. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, in celebration. But I, in fact, I haven't, I, I know uh, I've proctored a number of times over the years on, on uh, examination, on CLI testing. Haven't you done that a couple of times yourself, John? Oh, you, sure. Yeah, you've yeah. helped out and the we, committee, in other words. Yeah, we helped out the committee. Yeah. Yeah, we we go in, and the day before the the association actually meets, or the day that the, the association meetings start, the CLI testing is held, and either proctoring the exam or doing the role plays. I, you and I helped uh, do a role play together for uh, I forget who it was that uh, was being tested and and was successful. You know, it was nice, yes. but to to put a person through a role play situation, you really got to see whether they were uh, for real or they were all you know all hat and no cattle. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've been a witness. I've done that role play. I've been a witness that the uh, person testing for their CLI gets to interview. I've, I've played that witness <laughs> a number of times. I was able to put my old acting classes and all the experience in the entertainment unions to use. Yeah. You know, working, for, working with actors all those years. So. Anyway, but that's it. It was good. It's a good experience, and and uh, the website and, and that, has all that information. Yeah, you don't get it off the back of a cereal box. There's only sixty two of us throughout the entire exactly. world. You know, exactly. It's, yeah. It could be sixty one. It could be sixty three. But it's right in that early seat. We just one of one of uh, our colleagues just passed away recently, and and uh, an older gentleman out of mm-hmm. Tennessee. And uh, but uh, yeah, that's so. But it's, it's, it's the real yeah, deal. You're absolutely right. It's it's the real deal. Hey, so uh, so what are you doing these days, Don? Well, I uh, I. I like to joke or I like to think that I'm semi-retired and, and I'm doing mostly administrative work for my firm. My wife and I uh, mm-hmm. bought a house uh, last year that we're rehabbing. So that keeps me uh, keeps me busy when I don't have to do uh, work, uh, trace investigations work. I'm still involved in payroll and uh, doing administrative work and uh, okay. with the taxes and things like that. Of course, my wife still helps out some. She's uh, she just retired from the business. She went to work for the company back in in 2000 full time herself. Yeah, so uh, okay, and it's been with it ever since. And uh, she just retired this year. And, and okay, uh, this pandemic kind of 
stopped, I like to say, gobsmacked all my plans for the business. I was supposed to turn over the business. I was going to break off the pre-employment screening part of the business. We do a lot of corporate work, background screening for companies around the state Mm. of Indiana. I was going to split that off this year with my manager. She, in fact, my manager's is uh, Christine Carita, Michael's, uh, Michael's wife. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. she and Michael were going. Michael Carita, the New York Times bestselling author. author yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, well, uh, I interviewed on my podcast a few months ago. Yes. Yeah. And okay. so, so uh, Christine has been managing now for since 2013, I think. And uh, I mean, she's a. She's a smart, smart, smart professional woman, and she just has done wonders with that. Taking over, she took over that business, and and I really don't have to worry much about it. So, but Mm. we were going to transition that; they were going to take it over this year. You know, Christine was going to take it over and and, uh, going to split it off into a separate company. Uh, And we just got delayed; pandemic stopped everything. So, yeah, and I just had to concentrate on keeping the business alive. That's what I had to concentrate on, and we we. Like a lot of companies, I mean, this is, we weren't the only one. It was just, it was a hard year, a hard year. And and we're not spring no, chickens no, we're anymore, not. Don. We're not. Fortunately, I had Tina run the investigation side and, and Christine running the background screening side. So we all work well together. It's a, it's a great team. And, um, but I, I'm there and it's to support everything that they do, you know, and actually I help out on cases and uh, occasionally I'll do a lot of uh, checks here on my a lot of the background checks i will work on here on my laptop so we're bouncing back john we're bouncing back i was able to keep the staff on this year this past year so excellent so how can people reach you don well you can uh you can start by going to our website traceinvestigations.com there's an, uh, there's mm-hmm. a page there uh, contacting us. It will connect you uh, to uh, info at traceinvestigations.com, which I monitor. Uh, that's part of my 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 duties. And then there, the phone numbers for the office are there. So uh, you can call it 24-7. All right. Well, Don, it's a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate the time you took with me today. I never knew all this story. It's great to hear it. So thank you so much for sharing. No, no problem, John. Glad, glad to do it, man. And I appreciate you doing the podcast, man. It's uh, Good to know you're out there. Well, thank you. And I I have so much fun doing it. And I appreciate the time you took with me this afternoon. So thank you. Yes, sir. Good luck now, John. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. If you have any comments, please leave them on the website, thepicoach.com. Our guest next week is Karen Dion. Karen is a USA Today and number one internationally best-selling author of the award-winning psychological suspense novel, The Marsh King's Daughter, published by G.P. Putnam Sons in the U.S. and in 26 other languages. Her follow-up novel, The Wicked Sister, published in August of 2020, is also with G.P. Putnam Sons and was also an international bestseller and was chosen by Publishers Weekly as one of the best books of 2020. Marsh King's Daughter was selected by the Library of Michigan as a 2018 Michigan Notable Book and took home the Barry and Crimson Scribe Awards for Best Novel. Marsh King's Daughter was also chosen as one of the best books of 2017 by iBooks, Hudson Booksellers. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Irish Independent, the Florida Sun Sentinel, Library Journal, Shelf Awareness, and many other booksellers and reviewers, and also is in development as a major motion picture. Karen has been active in the writing community for over 20 years. She co-founded online writer 
community backspace and organized a backspace writers conference in New York and Salt K Writers Retreat held on a private island in the Bahamas. She's a member of the International Thriller Writers, where she served as a managing editor for their monthly publication, The Big Thrill, and on the board of directors as vice president of technology. It's my pleasure to bring Karen on the show next week. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.